second gathering of uh, salvation. We're going to put together stuff. Everybody's going to put together some concepts and bring them. And um, I'm going to probably give you one more week on that. I had a couple of people ask me for more time, so I'll surrender more time. But uh, hopefully, prayerfully, it's an exercise primarily for you. So, you know, to, to square your concept of salvation with the Word of God. What's the Bible say? Um, and and then to try to be aware where our tradition may be affecting um, our interpretation of Scripture, what Scripture lays out. So you got two sets of papers in front of you. You've got uh, a the doctrine of salvation with a little hyphen that says Reformed, and then you got one that says the doctrine of salvation with a hyphen that says non-Reformed. Um, I struggled with the concept, so you're going to see me probably in the paper call it three different things. It's not really Armenianism because I'm not an Armenian and I don't agree with any of the five points of Armenianism. So <clears throat> most of, of what traditional Calvary, I can't speak for all of them, would fall somewhere under the concept of moderate uh, which is like a Norm Geiser guy who he wrote the book uh, Chosen But Free. Uh, however, I did confess to you guys last time that I find myself vacillating and struggling with whether or not um, that's considering all that the Scripture says. So, so I'm going to do for you what nobody ever did for me. What people did for me were set up straw mans, knock them down, and tell me how dumb these concepts were. Later on in my own study, I started to bump into scriptures I could not just sweep under the carpet. So uh, I'm going to just kind of lay out both of it to you and the differences between them. And I'm going to, you know, prayerfully that's going to lead you to search the scriptures and be convinced by what the Word of God says. When we started, remember apologetics, we said, look, the the ground of of truth and or... Um, basically, ground of truth is going to be the Word of God, right? Remember the the, the Principium Ascendi, the ultimate foundation of reality for us is God. The Principium Cognoscendi, you and I, we can't know God, except God reveals Himself to us. He's done that how? Well, through the Word, right? Through the Word of God that we have before us now, we can know God through the Word. So the Word of God becomes foundational for it all. So whatever experiences we have, where do we go to decide whether or not that experience is authentic or not? We go to the Word of God. If it's in the Word of God, the Word of God says, yay, then we're good, right? If we go to the Word of God and we say, you know, that's not there, then I can put that on a shelf and say, you know, that maybe when I get to heaven, I'll ask the Lord what that experience was. But it's not in the Word. So that leaves everything subjective, right? And what we want is objectivity. We want to be able to point to something and say, here's what the Word of God says. That I, then I know I'm standing on firm foundation. Does that make sense to everybody? So I want to make sure that we're standing on a firm foundation. So we're, we're going to point out some of the differences. So basically what you have in those two sets of sheets is one that's more strictly reform in its uh, soteriology. And one that people might consider moderate. Um, I pulled greatly from Norm Geisler for the moderate view, uh, but also from Moody Bible Institute. Um, I tried, to be honest, to find some 
some good Armenian sources, and I just I couldn't find them. I found sources, but what I didn't find in the sources was scripture. But I, I wanted to see what they were going to do with scripture. If that makes sense uh, to you guys. So I read about thirty pages and did not have one verse. So after that, I said, okay. I said, well, and I'm not saying that source isn't out there. I'm just saying uh, I didn't have it. So, so we'll, we'll try that. We'll try that search, you know, and maybe, maybe some of the stuff. I know Howard's been running down some of the same road. So keep in mind, this is uh, uh, all open for discussion. So you got questions, let's talk about it. But all the further we're going to get, we're going to talk about grace, election, and reprobation. So those three concepts um, and their mirror form back and forth because there's a lot of disagreement on those issues. So um, hopefully you'll understand as we go. So let's take a look. Each one begins the same way. Soteriology is salvation, the doctrine of salvation, study of salvation. So all doctrines should have their beginning with God. That's one of the things I immediately saw in some of the more... Um, Armenian text is the beginning in my opinion I didn't feel like it was beginning with God but um, the one that I had began with freedom it began with man's free will which which is uh, I think a faulty place to begin because um, we should begin with God who is God that's why we had that lengthy study right going through the attributes of God Talking about the attitudes of God, the providence of God. We tried to put all that stuff together to say, okay, God's big and this is what he looks like. And, and this is, so everything we pull from now, when we talked about the doctrine of man, where does it begin with? What God says about man. Not what man says about himself. Man's got lots of opinions about a lot of things. What's God say? What's his word talk about? In the same way, when we look at salvation. So the following is intended to be a comparison of Reformed soteriology and, I don't know what word, I used evangelical, that's probably bad too, uh, a different non-Reformed uh, soteriology, okay? So, uh, and you'll notice where your traditions are going to kind of butt heads with the Reformed view, unless Reformed is your tradition. Uh, so first, let's start with Reformed. A list of the events in which God applies salvation to us is called the order of salvation sometimes referred to by a latin phrase ordo salutis in case you ever are in bible trivia it could come in handy ordo salutis which simply means order of salvation this will be the beginning of of areas of distinction between the two views on salvation so here's the order the reformed order election god's choice of people to be saved two the gospel call Proclaiming the message of the gospel. Three, regeneration, being born again. Four, conversion, faith and repentance. That's going to be one of the first areas of flipped. What what, what was flipped? What was flipped in a reform view? What happened first? What what came before faith? So right here I just said regeneration, being born again was number three and conversion or faith was number four. So traditionally um, 
The alternate view, I'm trying to think of how I want to say everything, is um, faith comes first and then regeneration. The reform view, regeneration occurs first and that brings out faith. Um, then justification, that's a familiar phrase, right? We all understand that. A right legal standing before God. We have adoption, which is membership into God's family. Sanctification, which is God's changing us, right? Conforming us into the image of His Son. Perseverance, that means remaining a Christian, walking the walk through life, right? We, it wasn't a flash in the pan and then it wasn't there anymore. Uh, death, which is going to be with the Lord and glorification, receiving a glorified body in the end of salvation. Now, if you look at your other form, just so we can kind of get some of these ideas put together, um, you'll see it starts the same thing. The following is intended to be a comparison. So here we go. The Bible is a soteriological book that begins in eternity with God's act of foreknowledge. So where did they begin? Where did this view begin? What's the first thing? I'll give you a hint. Foreknowledge. So that's where they're starting, right? So it's a salvation book dealing with God. And the first point before was election, right? You guys see it? Between the two notes. Point A under the order of salvation was election. The first point listed here by Norm Geisler uh, is that God is acting in His foreknowledge. Okay? You with me so far? Uh, So it begins with God's act of foreknowledge, predestination, and election. Even before we are saved, God is at work in provenient grace and conviction. When by faith one receives the initial act of salvation, justification, at that very instant he or she is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Baptized into the body of Christ. Same thing as being adopted into the family. Redeemed. Regenerated. Born again. So you saw faith occurred before regeneration, right? You guys with me? And there's an emphasis on foreknowledge, which seems to be left out in the other. Um, uh, So adopted into God's family. Reconciled to God. Forgiven of sin. Based on the mediation and atonement of Christ. All of these saving acts are made possible only because of the substitutionary death of Jesus on behalf of our sin, whereby the just died for the unjust in order that God's justice might be satisfied and His mercy justify the unjust. Salvation did not end in a single act of justification. This is simply the first stage. Often they talk about three stages. I think I talked to you guys about four But basically it's the same, just depends on where you count from. Uh, This is the first stage by which one is saved from the penalty of sin. Salvation also involves a lifelong process of sanctification, by which we are saved from the power of sin. At death, our redemption climaxes with the act of glorification that saves us from the presence of sin. At this point, we will see God face to face, the beatific vision. We talked about that, remember Um, in the attributes of God, uh, what it will be like when we see Him face to face. And we will become like Him, for then we shall see Him as He is. Each of those are kind of like a brief statement of what happens in salvation. (coughs) Okay, so 
slide the non-reformed view up and we'll, we'll step into the first couple of points that we're going to look at. Really, in these first couple of points, it shouldn't be other than the difference in terms. not going to be really a lot of difference here. We have uh, in the beginning, under the Reformed view, common grace and saving grace. You're, gonna, you're going to compare that with prevenient grace and effectual grace. Okay, We use different words, but we still are saying there's grace that goes to everyone on the earth. And then there is a grace that is effectual or that brings forth salvation. Right? You guys see that in those two sets of notes? Prevenient grace, that which comes before, is the same thing as common grace, that which is common to all mankind. But not all common grace brings about salvation. Right or wrong? Is everyone on earth saved? Is everyone on earth going to be saved? Okay, then common grace does not bring about salvation everywhere. Where does salvation come forth? Well, we're going to see from both sides that the group from which salvation springs is called the elect in the Bible. And we're going to see that there seems to be (coughs) at least a difference in the response to the grace that God gives. Uh, whether you want to call a, a different grace of saving grace or effectual grace or a different way of responding to that grace. I'm not sure the the difference in that. But I think it's important that we see on both sides of of this of the of the view we have grace that uh, goes to all mankind, right? So we'll see the scriptures for it. Let's take a look again. Under reform, when Adam and Eve sinned, they became uh, uh, worthy of punishment, right? What did God say? If you eat of the fruit, what will happen? You will die. Did they die instantly when they ate the fruit? No. So that's the beginning of common grace. Does God have to take a life the minute a life sins? No. Does God sometimes? Yes. Has there been times where God has taken someone in sin? You know? Maybe that was the last one, the last straw, whatever. There are, there are cases where God does that. But every case that He doesn't do that is common grace. We're worthy of punishment, but God doesn't give it. Does that make sense? We're kind of thankful, right? Because God, in His long-suffering, waited that we might come to repentance. Right? You with me? Okay, so when human beings sin today... They're just as liable to the wrath of God. But the wrath of God does not always fall. But the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? How many times? All the time. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life, which we receive through whom? Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so there is salvation, there is punishment, there is wrath, there is salvation. God withholding His judgment is grace. Everybody see where I'm coming from? And that grace affects everyone on earth, doesn't it? And that doesn't matter if you're a pygmy or in the Sudan or in the U.S. If God has not brought His judgment, then that's a picture of common grace. Uh, <clears throat> this means that once people sin, God's justice would require only one thing, that they be eternally separated from God cut off from experiencing any good from Him, and that they live forever in hell, receiving only His wrath eternally. 
In fact, that's what happened to the angels. You guys remember about the angels, 2 Peter 2, 4? For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, did God, the angels get grace? No, they sinned and what happened? You have two groups of angels. What are the two groups? Elect and evil. You with me? So God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now obviously not all fallen angels are in judgment, but there are some the Bible speaks of that are. Right? We see in the book of Revelation, some being loosed. So, God immediately brought His judgment and wrath upon fallen angels, at least some of them. The fact that God doesn't do that for mankind, common grace. So God bestows common grace. We, we may define common grace as follows. Common grace is the grace of God by which He gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. Every good and perfect gift that God gives from heaven is an example of common grace. Everybody who ever stopped to smell the flowers is an example of common grace. Everybody who ever had a good day, who enjoyed the sunshine, or who enjoyed the rain or who enjoyed whatever things came in a particular day it's an example of common grace you guys with me for that idea um okay so let's let's look at examples of common grace you guys are welcome to read through this i don't want to read it all to you but feel free to here's some examples common grace in the physical realm Unbelievers continue to live in this world solely because of God's common grace. Every breath that people take is of grace. Because the wages of sin is death, not life. Uh, The earth does not produce only thorns and thistles. Right? According to the fall, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you and you shall eat the herb of the field. It's by God's grace that it's not all thorns and thistles. Every time there's a harvest, common grace. It's God's grace upon all mankind all over the earth. Jesus appeals to God's abundant grace as an encouragement to His disciples that they should follow suit. What's that mean? Because God... Remember I told you when we look at the attributes of God, there are communicable attributes. In other words, attributes that we should reflect in our life. Because God gives common grace to all mankind, that's the basis for some of the things that Jesus said. Like in Matthew 5, 44 and 45. I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And then he tells us why. Because even your Father in heaven makes the sun shine on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. What's that mean? That God bestows common grace that He loves the world. So God <coughs> bestowing <coughs> excuse me, bestowing grace is a call for us also to love our neighbor, whether they're saved or not. Right? Because that's what God does. To do good for our neighbor, whether they're saved or not. Why? That's what God does. That should be something that flows through our life. In the same way, Paul spoke to the people of Lystra. He says in Acts 14, verse 16, Who in bygone generations, speaking of God, allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, He did not leave Himself without witness, in that He did good and gave us rain from heaven 
and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Paul's talking about all the people in the world. Every time anyone's needs have ever been met, a picture of common grace. Okay? Grace that goes upon everybody. We see it in the Old Testament. Genesis 39.5 So it was from the time that He had made Him overseer of His house and all that He had that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for who? Joseph's sake. Because the Egyptian deserved it? What do we call that? Grace. Right? He gave grace. Common grace flowing to them on behalf of believers. On behalf of those who serve God. Psalm 145, verse 9. Lots of things in Psalm 145. <clears throat> Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to who? Okay. In, that, in this instance, that means what it says. Okay. So sometimes we've got to get the definition of all from context, right? But here, he's talking about everybody. The Lord is good to all. And His tender mercies are over all His works. So God's tender mercies flow. Okay? Common grace. Psalm 145, 15 and 16. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their food in due season. Who's the psalmist talking to? God. And what's he talking about? His provision. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of how many living things? Who feeds the deer? Who feeds the birds? Who feeds it? It's God. Common grace spilled out upon the earth. It's one of the things that gives God great joy to give good things. Remember, that's a part of the attributes of God, right? To bring glory to Him through good, through the good things that are done. Common grace in the intellectual world. Let's take a look. Satan is a liar and the father of lies and there is no truth in him. Because he is fully given over to evil and to irrationality and uh, commitment to falsehood that accompanies radical evil. But human beings in the world today, even unbelievers, are not totally given over to lying, irrationality, or ignorance. In other words, men are not as evil as they could be. How come men are not as evil as they could be even though they rejected the Lord? Common grace. For... For the non-reformed view, prevenient grace. But it's the same thing. It's just a different word. Everybody okay? So, John 1.9 says, All, all people are able to, to have a grasp of truth. Indeed, some have great intelligence and understanding. There also must be seen as, or this also must be seen as a result of God's grace. Where is all the wisdom, or the treasure of wisdom and knowledge found? What's the Bible say? In Colossians. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ Jesus. So in Him, man, we have wisdom and knowledge. But what about the unbeliever? Don't we see wisdom and knowledge going to them? We see them expressing wisdom and knowledge. What does it say in John 1.9? That the true light which gives light to how many men? Every man. Okay, so when we talk about light, what are we talking about? Enlightenment. Understanding. Wisdom being given to every man. Who did it come from? God. Specifically, in John chapter 1, we're talking about the Logos, right? The Word. 
So God, through Jesus Christ, expressing, which is the same thing Colossians says for the believer, right? That all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ Jesus. So, <coughs> uh, John speaks of Jesus as the true light that enlightens every man. For in his role as creator and sustainer of the universe, uh, not particularly in his role as redeemer, the Son of God allows enlightenment and understanding to come to all the people of the world. Okay, this is not something that was accomplished on the cross. This is something that God gives. That makes sense to everyone? So, one of the things we're going to need to struggle through is deciding what we're going to limit. You're going to limit something. you got to make a choice, right? There really, there's probably three, four, maybe five views of salvation that are all different uh, degrees of one another. Does that make sense? Like, we, we like this part, but then we lean more toward this part uh, when we get there. But you're either going to limit the power of God to save... Or you're going to limit the scope. But you're going to limit one of those two things. You don't have any other choice. Huh? Okay. You're going to say that God is not able to save who He wants. Well, let's use a scripture we're familiar with. That the, that the Lord desires to save all men. To bring salvation to all men. One view is going to say God can't say either He saved everyone, and we've already said that's not true. Agreed? So God hasn't saved anyone. So it's limited somehow. So if you limit the power, you say God's not able to save because man would not receive Him. Or you will say God is able to save because God chose Him. So one says God has the power to save. and one, So one doesn't limit the power. You guys get where I'm coming from. And one does limit the power. So you're hinging on predestination. So say it again. So you're hinging on predestination. You're hinging on it for sure. Uh, and predestination can become a big part of it. And, and, and my goal is to get there. But I just want us to kind of as we work our way through, see the differences, okay? Hear the language. These are all traditions we all have grown up with and we've all considered. And we've got to decide <coughs> which one is more consistent with Scripture. That should be the final arbiter. Agreed or not agreed? Okay. Not, which one does Jackie, is Jackie able to, to explain better? It has nothing to do with it. Which one does the Word of God is more consistent with the Word of God? So that's where we want to find so when we talk about intellectuality and God's common grace, we see it in Romans chapter 1, right? How do we see it in Romans chapter 1? In Romans 1, 21, because all they, although they knew God, who knew God? Everybody, right? So let's talk about everybody. They did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, earlier in Romans chapter 1, it says they know God because who told them? It says God showed them. It says they know because God showed them. They know because God showed them. That, it's just an example of common grace, right? 
That's all I'm trying to, to develop. So this means that there's a sense of God's existence, often a hunger to know God, that He allows to remain in people's hearts, even though it often results in different man-made religions. Is that, do we see that? Men trying to clamor to God. they got a desire for God. Maybe it's a God of their own making, but they have a desire for God. Those are all examples of common grace. <clears throat> um, then we look at the moral realm. God restrains evil. Uh, again, many are not as evil as they can be. One very effective restraint is conscience. Does everyone have one? What's the difference between a person who you know, lives by his conscience and one that doesn't? What's the Bible tell us? How can you damage your conscience? And what's the Bible say you're doing to your conscience? Searing it. You're burning it. Right? Which means it becomes less feeling. Right? Anybody got burns, burn scars? Yeah, for sure. But the point, I think the point he's making is, as that's happening, you feel less. And you get duller to, to the common grace of God. So, so do we always do that ourselves, or does God do that sometimes to us? Which part? Well, so not the suppressing, but the searing, because he hardened the pearls. Look at you getting ahead of us. So, in common grace, God does not restrain. So I think common grace goes to everyone. That's why I think everyone will be left without a answer. And, and in all views, your choice matters. What did you do? Uh, in all views, God tells, and we're going to get to it, Paul, Go. How will they know if you don't go? How will they know if a preacher doesn't go? How will, we got to send them. We got to go talk to them, right? So it's not an issue where God's just going to go there. You're good, but He's gonna. He's got that grace sent out, and then He sends us to go tell the gospel, and then what the 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 evidence of of election is some people believe it, and our ability to understand it, but. Does God harden? Yes. But He doesn't harden common grace. I would suggest He hardens, he hardens against effectual or saving, depending on what you want to call it. Because it's the same either way, right? We all Nobody believes everyone's saved except for a universalist. So a universalist says, don't worry about it. God saved everyone on the cross. Everyone's good. Do whatever you want. That's universalism. It's, uh, it's out there. Uh, it is the most logical direction for Armenianism to go. Because, because some of the choices that are made in Armenianism, some of the limitations they place are arbitrary. And they're not found in Scripture. And so it kind of goes that way. But we're going to get there and talk about that when we talk about reprobation. Um, okay, so more around. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, are not, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. What's he talking about? What's Paul talking about in Romans 2? He's describing the work of a conscience. When somebody knows I shouldn't lie, when somebody knows I shouldn't steal, what's an example of? Common grace. 
who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts either accuse them or excuse them. So there's an inward sense of right and wrong that God gives to all men. It's one of the uh, leftover examples of the image of God in all mankind everywhere. So you talk to an atheist who said God doesn't exist. You know, one of the arguments that we're going to talk about is the argument of morality. Where did morality come from? Why is it so uniform? Not perfectly uniform, but why is it so uniform around the world? Why does everybody say, yeah, this is bad. This is good. And so, uh, in fact, there's not, as far as I know, one single society that rewards cowardice. That doesn't exalt bravery. Um, It's a leftover remnant, if you will, of the image of God, which is in all men, right? All men are created in the image of God, but the image is effaced. It's damaged by sin. It's not erased, but it's a little boogered. So, anyways, those are examples. Now, sometimes we see people, maybe some good Mormon friends, who are so morally on the ball, they're, 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 they're a great example of of, uh, you know, doing right. Does that say? How do we know that? Depends. It, all these things are going to depend on your answers, right? Okay. Does it depend on man? If it does, that, that's going to make it a little more difficult when we talk around the concept of works. Right? You with me? I'm, nobody's saying that work shouldn't naturally flow out of a life who's serving God. But we also we all know people who don't aren't believers who have good works in their life, right? Well, what is it that the Bible says? In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, it says, No one is justified by the law in the sight of God. How many people are justified? Nobody. No one is justified... By the law and the sight of God. This is evident for the just shall live how? By faith. Faith is a difference. And we have to ask ourselves, where did that faith come from? Is that something we're born with? That's something God gives. That's going to lead us into other issues, right? Okay. Just keep it in mind as we go. Um, the creative realm, God has allowed a significant measures of skill, right? We see great musicians. They're not all Christians, right? We see incredible artists. Not all Christians, right? We see incredible sculptors and builders and guys who are gifted. Common grace. Common grace. The societal realm, two specific areas where we see common grace. Human family, which is being attacked, right? Man and woman, which brings life. Right? No other familial relationship can bring life. I don't care what anybody says. Life cannot come from two guys. Life cannot come from two girls. Okay? So, <coughs> common grace, the family. Do you have to be a believer to have a family? Nope. Common grace. And human government. One of the ways God restrains evil in the world, right? Is through human government. Is that what he told us in Romans 13? 
Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. Who made the authorities? God. Who put Obama on the throne? Oh, that's a rough one to chew on, isn't it? God gives us the king we deserve. There better be a lot of repentance because there's a worse one on the horizon, I'm afraid. <laughs> Makes me nervous. Um, okay, but look at Romans 13, 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good works, so if people do right, the rulers aren't supposed to terrorize them. Who are the rulers supposed to terrorize? The ones who do evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do good. And you will have praise from the same. For he, governing authority, is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. So that's God-ordained common grace. Does that mean it's never taken advantage of? That people don't do the flip side of this? No, of course they do. But this is a view of God's common grace in the societal realm. Uh, Let's look in the religious realm. (coughs) Basically the idea is that God's grace manifested in the church brings blessing on the world. Right? When, whenever the church builds a hospital. Whenever the church reaches out and feeds the hungry. Is that all stuff we're supposed to do? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we I think, sometimes grow weary in doing it. But you, you, Jesus had this little saying that echoes in my mind at night. You know, when I, when I get tired of fielding people asking me for money and help and stuff. He said, the poor you will have with you how long? Who, who made the rich? Who made the poor? Who's in control? Well, does that mean that everybody's life is on up and up? And Well, no. Sometimes people do dumb things and they end up suffering in that because of, of, because of choices they made. Okay? But still God's common grace is with them and it should flow from the church to the people. Not supposed to be a welfare system in the nation. The welfare system was the church. In ancient Israel, that's how the welfare system worked. We have some of it in Idaho, right? If they uh, go through and harvest potatoes, what can we come through and do later? Glean it, right? We go in with a bucket and you can load up all kind of ugly potatoes that didn't get on the... Some of them are pretty, some of them are... They all taste the same, don't they? Yeah. You can have enough potatoes to feed yourself for the rest of your life. All you got to do is go to a couple of places and take some buckets. And we had guys who used to bring truckload after truckload after truckload here. Remember all them buckets we'd have sitting out there? All gleaned. That was God's plan for the welfare, right? Don't You couldn't harvest the corner and you could only make one pass through a field. And then the welfare people who were poor could come. So God's plan was never so that they couldn't couldn't take care of themselves. And the other thing God expected is people to give alms. Part of going into the temple, remember the, the, at the gate beautiful, what did Peter and John do? They found a guy there who was lame, right? Jesus must have walked by him a number of times. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give to you. Okay, what's the whole point? They, they would, the poor would meet outside the gate for alms. Some type of... Uh, Giving that came from God's people to the poor. And those were things God expected. If we hold on to it too tight, well, we're not being consistent with 
what the Word of God says. And usually that's because pride or <coughs> selfishness or something else willing itself up in us. So basically the church, right? There should be an expression of grace, saving grace into the church that is expressed to the world, not just to the, to the lost or not to the saved, but to the world. Okay. When Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies. Well, who is the enemies? That's, that's everybody, right? Are you supposed to not love your friends? So when he says, love your enemies, we're supposed to love everybody. Okay. There's there's no out for that. We may not like to hear it, but there's no out for that. Bless those who curse you. Yeah, nope, you're right. It doesn't say you have to like them. You just have to you have to love them. And the way Christ loved people was dying for them. So, <laughs> pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Right? These are the things that should flow from us. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, which, by the way, leads us to the context of the word all in 1 Timothy 2, 4. So if you got, if you got your Bibles, you can see the whole thing in your Bible. <coughs> in 1 Timothy 2, 1, Therefore I exhort you, exhort you, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for who? All men. Now, you see that next word in verse 2? What's it the word of? What's the first word? Four. Four. Okay, so now he's describing who the all men are. Why, how, what's this mean? For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Okay, now here's what I'm going to tell you. That all men is all those people who are in authority, who are persecuting you now. God says, don't just pray for your friends. Don't just pray for your believers. Pray for all men, including those men who are in authority over you that you don't want to pray for, but that you might have a peaceable life. So God says, pray for them. What's it say in verse 3? Somebody read it. Verse 4. So my my explanation is that when he says all men in verse 2, or I'm sorry, in verse 1, he's saying, I want you to pray for all kinds of men. And God wants all kinds of men to be saved. And I think that's a consistent interpretation of the word all. You might you don't have to agree with me. And it's alright if you don't. But I just wanted to give you the, the explanation. When this is not the only place Paul does this. So there's an extended explanation on those things in your notes. I tell you where to go for uh, three verses that pretty consistently come up. Uh, so if you want to do that research, you can. Uh, in cases of trouble or distress, God often does hear the prayer of unbelievers. Does God hear their prayer? Lord, Lord save me. He may not save them with salvation in the sense of... Because uh, salvation can also mean, save me. The bad guys are coming. I don't want to die. Right? So does God answer that? I'm not saying He doesn't answer the prayer if they cry out, save me. 
the other way either because my argument would be they're elect if they do that. You guys with me? And if they don't do it, then they're not. I think it's kind of simple, but we complicate it. Um, but we see again in Psalm 145, the Lord is good to how many? All. Okay, And the eyes of all look expectantly to you. So God is their provision. Uh, finally, even the proclamation of the gospel to those who do not accept it is a, it's a clear declaration of God's mercy and grace, which gives clear witness to the fact that God does not delight in the death or the condemnation of any of His creatures. Now, when you look at Ezekiel 33.11, think of it this way. Say to them, the Lord says, I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the, in the death of the wicked but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? We take that verse sometimes and we make it about salvation in the sense of being saved for all eternity. But I would say that's not what that scripture is talking about. I would say that scripture is saying God doesn't want to see anyone die. He doesn't have, there's nothing that satisfies him with joy or brings pleasure in the idea <coughs> that the wicked die. Because what happens the moment they die? Is it appointed unto man? Wants to die and then what? Judgment. And what happens to the wicked when they die in judgment? Hell. So God's not saying, I'm, I'm, I'm in a hurry to send anybody to hell. Is that consistent with what you know the attributes of God? That I am not in a hurry to send anyone to hell. He has no glory in the destruction of the wicked. What happened when the children of Israel were disobedient and God sent Nebuchadnezzar to destroy Jerusalem? Did people die? When Ezekiel the prophet is prophesying, where is he prophesying from? Babylon. So we're... we're God is talking about physical death. And he doesn't he's not in a hurry for anyone to physically die. <clears throat> Reasons for common grace. <clears throat> to redeem those who will be saved. What's a reason for common grace? 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. We know this, right? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any would perish, but that how many? All should come to repentance. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Common grace, God waits. God doesn't judge immediately so that all those who will be saved will be saved. You and I, we do not have the ability to know the elect from the unelect, do we? Nope. We didn't have the ability to know the elect from the reprobate. Nope. We might think we know. But then there's these stories like uh, uh, Manasseh. And then we go, oh, darn it. I was pretty sure that guy was toast. Or Nebuchadnezzar. Or you know any other examples that we might come up with. What's our job? What did Jesus give us in the commission? Go therefore and tell. Share the gospel with as many as you can. We don't know the difference. How do we know the elect? The elect respond, receive, repent, and remain. 
right? What if they don't remain? Well, I still don't know for sure if they're not elect because I got that prodigal son deal, right? He went to live with the pigs for a while. He came back. So God's got to sort that stuff out. Do I have to sort it out? Anywhere where God says, Jackie, you worry about the salvation of every other person. <laughs> What's he tell me to worry about? Yeah, work out your own salvation. Yeah, okay. I, I, that's a big enough job. No? That's a big enough job for me. Uh, anyway, it's just, this is a reason for common grace, right? That men could be saved. Another reason, to demonstrate God's goodness and mercy. Right? Does, does common grace demonstrate that God is good, even to those who don't deserve it? Does common grace demonstrate that God is merciful? Yeah. Uh, Luke 6.35, what we've read in, in several other <coughs> scriptures, love your enemies, do good, lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. You know what that means? You will be sons of the Most High. That means you will be reflecting the character of your Father in Heaven. Right? What do we say when we see somebody's son and they look like an apple don't fall far from a tree? You sure can't tell whose kid that is. Right? So when we're doing this, what is he saying? I can sure tell what God you serve. I can tell who your father is. Didn't Jesus? How did Jesus describe the Pharisees? What did he say their father was? You're like your father, the devil. He was a father of lies, murderer from the beginning. Isn't that exactly what was in their heart? Who were they following? Who was their father? The devil. You get what I'm saying? Um, Mark ten twenty one. This is the rich young ruler. Remember the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What did it say about Jesus? Now the rich young ruler, as far as we know, he leaves, right? Jesus tells him, come and follow me. What's he do? He walks away. But more incredible than that, what did Jesus do to him first? Look what it says. Jesus looking at him, what? Loved him. For God so loved the world doesn't mean that the whole world is saved. Does not mean God can't love them. Doesn't mean God can't love someone who rejects Him. <coughs> Does it? It's an example of common grace. Common grace of God bestowed upon the world. Another reason for common grace is to demonstrate God's justice. To demonstrate God's justice. When God repeatedly invites sinners to come to faith and they repeatedly refuse His invitation, the justice of God in condemning them is seen more clearly. Yes or no? Make sense? Romans 2.5 but, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now we have a question about that, but you've got to hold on to it for a minute because right now we're talking about common grace. Okay? So common grace. I'll tell you this. The Bible teaches us that all glory goes to God Almighty for saving the elect and all responsibility goes upon man for rejecting Him. That's clear teaching of God's Word. 
Now you may want to reconcile that. And that's okay. Uh, what, I, what I learn as I study and go through the Word is there's a lot of things I want to reconcile that I find exist in a dynamic tension. But I can see the clear reading of Scripture. And Scripture tells us man is responsible for his choices, whether or not God chose him. Right? Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. Did that mean you didn't have a choice or you did? You did. No matter what, you did. And it mattered. And you're responsible for it. (coughs) Uh, And ultimately, common grace demonstrates God's glory. Uh, God's glory is shown in many ways by the activity of human beings in all areas in which common grace is operative. In developing and exercising dominion over the earth, men and women demonstrate and reflect the wisdom of their Creator. They demonstrate godlike qualities of skill. They demonstrate moral virtue and authority over the universe, and so on. And through all of these activities, though they are tainted by sinful motives, they nonetheless reflect the excellence of the Creator and therefore bring Him glory. God says, I will use the wrath of man to praise my name. God uses it all. Right? I don't know. You have to decide whether or not what Jackie says flies or don't fly. So let's move into election. Okay? And so we're going to go straight through this one and then we'll look and talk about some of the differences, hopefully. Uh, Okay, God's work of election, that is, His decision to choose us to be saved before the foundation of the world. Is there anywhere you can go to get away from election? Is there any place to go? Is there any view anywhere that does not have a doctrine of election? (coughs) Nope. Why? Because it's everywhere in the Word. That God chose you before the foundation of the world, right? Now, we might temper it with other things, right? We might say, yes, God's choice of us was predicated by His foreknowledge that He knew we would choose Him, right? You're just going to have a hard time proving it. But you can say it. You can say it. So, election we can't get away from. The, the thing we hate about election is the flip side of election. What's the flip side? Not elect. Reprobate. If God chose some, it means what? He didn't choose others. So, when we think about this, and when we talk about this, here's what I want you to do. Remember God's attributes. Is God good? So if whatever I'm doing in my mind, trying to work my way through it, makes God not good, who's wrong? Me or God? That's right. The the failure is in my reasoning, my ability to reason through. And probably because I don't, I guarantee we don't have all the answers, right? To how God chooses. But I do know God's choice is in Him. And what he wants to tell me, he can tell me. The rest is suppositions. 
Okay? So when we come to election, the positive side of election, really nobody has a problem with the positive side. If you're saved, you're the elect. Hallelujah. Praise you, the Lord. God chose you from the foundation of the world. Before you were born. That's reason to praise Him. To glory in Him. To celebrate Him. And everyone who comes to the Lord and calls upon His name and answers the call or the draw of the Father is elect. Period. The flip side, however, that's a little trickier. So let's look at the positive side first. (coughs) We define election as follows. Election is an act of God before creation in which He chooses some people to be saved. Not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of His sovereign good pleasure. Okay, that's going to be a difference in definition. Everybody with me? Okay. I'm not saying this is the definition. Remember, I'm doing a comparison between multiple views. I'm saying under the Reformed heading, that's what we're kind of looking at right now, Reformed Soteriology, the Reformed view defines election as follows. Election is an act wholly, completely, and totally in God, of God, by God, for God. No part played by us. I didn't say that. You said that. I'd say the Bible says everywhere we got a choice. But you don't get a you don't get a duck what the word says. So let's take a look at it. Acts thirteen forty eight. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. What does it say? And as many as had been appointed to eternal life did what? True or lie? Okay. We don't get to throw it out, right? So whatever our view, all I'm suggesting is we want to be consistent with the Word of God. So what's the Word of God say? And and whatever my view is has to remain consistent with the Word of God. Let's look at Romans 8. Well, we read Romans 8, 28-30 last time. Everybody remember it? And we know all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he called, whom he called, these he justified, whom he justified, these he glorified. Okay? So God predestined, same concept as election. He, before the foundation of the world, picked. There, at least, you can say, there, what's that foreknowledge? What's that foreknowledge? So we'll come to it. Romans 9, <coughs> 10 through 13. Not only this, when Rebekah had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done good or evil, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand, Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now, don't trip on Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It's an idiomatic phrase in Hebrew, which simply means 
Jacob I have chosen, and Esau I have not. So when we look at that, nothing, no reason said, nothing good or evil. He doesn't talk about, I looked and saw that Jacob would be a man of faith or who cared about uh, things of salvation more. Okay? Paul, speaking of the remnant in Israel, said this, What then? Romans eleven seven. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. What's the next phrase? But the elect have obtained it. And the rest were what? Is all of Israel saved? Now think about what the word declares. Not everyone who says they are of Israel are of Israel. The Bible does declare all of Israel will be saved. But what group is it talking about when it talks about all of Israel? It's not talking about every Jew. He's talking about his remnant, the what? Elect. The elect of Israel will be saved. Was there always an elect of Israel? Did God always have a remnant? Even when everybody else was failing and falling, was there people who believed? Right? Remember Elijah said, I'm the only one left. And God said, nope, you're not alone, brother. I got 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Uh, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Just as He chose us in Him... Before the foundation of the world. Who wrote the book of Ephesians? Paul, right? When he uses the word us, is he including himself in this statement? Okay. So just as he chose us in him, did Paul choose Jesus? Yeah, that was a trippy situation, right? Paul was going to go kill people. And what happened? There's a statement. You know, God knocked him off his horse, but the Bible doesn't say he was on a horse. So, but we all get what he means, right? God met Paul on the way and shut him down, revealed himself to him. Yeah? And said, You're my chosen vessel. I'm picking you. You're on my team, Paul. And I've got a job for you to do. And Paul did it. Right? So when Paul lumps himself in with the Ephesians, isn't he lumping himself in this, in a similar way at least? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Why did God choose us? He, we were chosen in love. Right? In love. Isn't that good that God loves you? Stop worrying about the reprobate right now. Isn't it good that God loves you? Yeah? Isn't that something to glorify him and praise him for? Okay, it's too early to trip. Don't start tripping yet. We got a long ways to go. There's like 30 pages here, and we're like on page four. So stay with me. Okay, uh, he, he, he chose us, therefore, uh, before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to what? According to the good pleasure. Couldn't he have said, according to the faith you expressed in Jesus Christ? Well, he didn't say that, though. He said, according to the good pleasure of what? His will. To the praise and glory of what? Your faith? Oh, to the praise and glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Okay. <coughs> First Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. 
For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. So he's talking to believers in Thessalonica and he says, man, you who were of the election by God, because the message that we preached was in power and in the Holy Spirit. And what, who did it call? Who came? When Paul preached, who came? A lot of people in the crowd. Who came forward? Who received Christ? Who bowed the knee? The elect. And what were they? Your election by God. The elect by God. For our gospel was not only in word, but in power. What was the power? Of the word? The power of the gospel? For it is the power of God. How? To salvation right I am not ashamed come on you're mister I'm not ashamed throw it to me yeah I'm not ashamed of the gospel so the power of the gospel brings the elect call of God all given uh, to a specific group 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we who are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation. What did it say? God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Not saying faith not there. I'm just saying God picked. God picked. When Paul talks about the reason why God saved us and called us to Himself, he explicitly denies it's because of our works, but rather points to God's own purpose and His unmerited grace in eternity past. He says God is the one who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not in virtue of our works, but in virtue of His own purpose and the grace which He gave us in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. He didn't say, for the glory of our faith. He said it was by what? Grace, right? Grace, unmerited favor. <coughs> Gift of God. Some, yeah. Yeah. I didn't always think so. You might be able to make that argument. But, um, um, what it, what it does is it moves God from the center and puts man there. And, and God and the uh, emphasis on our choice, I'm not saying our choice doesn't matter, I'm not saying we're coerced, I'm not saying we're forced, so I'm trying to be very careful on the words I use. Our, our choice matters, but your choice was made before you were born, before you existed. God said, Howard's mine. And that's grace. Before you ever did anything good or bad, God chose you. And that's something to praise Him for. 
Right? You get what I mean? And so that's kind of the direction of the, uh, the emphasis I'm trying to make. Um, 1 Peter 1.1 Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he calls them elect exiles. 1 Peter 2.9 You are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. <coughs> Revelation 13.7 and 8 also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given uh, it over every tribe and people and nation, uh, language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name, what's this phrase? Was not written in the, was everyone whose name was not written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. When was your name written? Before the foundation of the world. Before you ever made a choice. <clears throat> Revelation 17, 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from a bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was, is not, and is to come. So... The point being, there are those whose names are written from the foundation of the world. And there are those whose names are not written from the foundation of the world. So when we talk about election, what I'm trying to emphasize, and hopefully I'm not doing too bad a job, I want to emphasize the idea <coughs> that God picked. Now we're going to talk about foreknowledge, but I haven't got there yet. So I'm not ignoring that, and I'm not trying to ignore the questions. But then let's look at um, election on the other page, and, and just maybe lay out some of the ideals or differences therein. Uh, under election, uh, C, there is no debate about the fact that election is a difficult doctrine by anybody's standard. Everybody okay with that statement so far? But since it is a scriptural doctrine, we cannot dodge it. And of course, it is a doctrine that is inseparably connected with the doctrine of salvation. The word elect or election occurs 14 times in the New Testament. An elect person is a chosen one. Uh, election is used of Israel. Two scriptures listed. Of angels and of believers. Uh, all of those are scriptures we've already read in the other side, on the other section. Chosen or choose. Uh, the words chosen and choose are, choose are used numerous times. Uh, they're, they're employed of Christ when He's picking the twelve, of a disciple, even of Judas. Soteriologically, a chosen one is a person elected to salvation by God. Ephesians 1.11 In Him we have an obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So the concept of election must be rooted in the character of God Himself. In other words, election as everything God does is in complete harmony with His character. That means several things. <coughs> election is loving. For God who is love 
can do nothing unloving. Ephesians 1.4 tells us we are elect in love, right? Uh, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Um, God's election is wise because He is wise. His elect purpose originated in eternity past. Now that's, you guys understand, I'm not trying to make, that's a logical fallacy. Are you guys missing that one? Those notes? Uh, The second, the backside of the doctrine of salvation non-reform. So I'm just comparing the election we just talked about with this election. Sorry, I'm not trying to be extra confusing. I wasn't really sure how I could put them in notes and keep them separate from one another. Um... Uh, so when I say eternity past and eternity future, you guys know that's that's a logical fallacy. There is no past in eternity. There is no future in eternity. But I use the term so you understand what I'm talking about. Okay? Um, so in eternity past, His choice, His purpose originated in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. Right? That's what the Word teaches us. And it extends through the end of time, right? To the end. It's all His choice. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. <coughs> Eternity past. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those He called, He justified. And those He justified, He glorified. That's eternity future. So, God's election begins and continues all the way through eternity. Before the foundation of the world to the end of the world and beyond. You with me? The outworking of election will not generally violate natural laws which God created and to which He normally binds Himself. In other words, God generally won't do what He did to Paul. Right? We, don't, we haven't seen too many other Pauls, right? Where God appeared to someone and said, Hey, you're going the wrong way, dude. Get on track. Come with me. So, <clears throat> generally, it will uh, follow or won't violate natural laws. Um, and he's going to use the message preached. Romans ten fourteen. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they going to believe in Him Of whom they have never heard. How are they to hear without someone preaching? So God still uses us to take the gospel to to work out His plan of election. It also means the law of sowing and reaping applies. So an unbeliever who persists in unbelief will reap the lake of fire. In other words, the element of the exercise of human responsibility is parked of the total plan of election. You're responsible for your choice. Election ultimately glorifies God. In some instances, it's difficult for us to see, but we must remember that we observe only a very small part of the outworking of God's total program in this universe, and we are in no position to pass judgment on what He is doing. That's election 
through Norm Geisler and uh, what you would call a moderate view, non-reform. <coughs> so we really, I guess my point is we really don't have a problem with election on either side. No matter where you go, you're left with what the Bible says, and the Bible says God chose. If you come to salvation, God chose you before the foundation of the world. To glory His grace, not to glory your wisdom that you were least willing to make the choice. Or not to glory in, you know, in any way that the glory would go anywhere other than His grace to choose. Now, the, I, I should say that's reform view. A uh, non-reform view would say that it's going to hinge on foreknowledge. That God's choice of you hinged on your choice of Him. There are two verses that use the word foreknow in Scripture. And neither of them say that God foreknew facts. They both refer to God foreknowing people. Whom he foreknew, he predestined. According to his foreknowledge, he did predestine us to be adopted uh, into the family of God. So, my point is, in order to make the case of God foreknowing your choice, and that you would choose him, and that being the evidence of election if we're going to say I want to be consistent with what the word of God says then that's where you have to find it you have to find it there um, and my, I think the point that, that, that Geisler makes I'm not sure if that was Geisler it's in the footnotes at the end, at the end of it all we look at it and we go yeah I know when I come up against something I don't understand, I fall back on what I do. God is good. God is loving. God is righteous. God is just. And however I reconcile these things in my mind, I have to remember i got to start with God and go from there. If I start anywhere else, I'm going to end up with a faulty system. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's 8.30 and I haven't got into foreknowledge and answering the misconceptions. So here's what, I'm sure there's lots of questions and maybe we can just open it up and ask the questions. In your notes, uh, on under re, the reform soteriology, I'm sorry I didn't mark pages or, or number them. <coughs> so one, two, three, four, five, six. Six, from page six on... Uh, it's the notes are going to deal with um, the purpose of election and it's important that we understand that that election is intended as a comfort to believers it's intended as a reason to praise God and it's intended as an encouragement to evangelize because we don't know who they are and we, got, we know that the Bible says I got to share the gospel or they don't get it. So, election means I got to go. And election comforts me and election causes me to praise God. <clears throat> Those notes are in there and we'll talk about them next week. But we're going to spend a little bit more time on it. But I want you guys, go through my notes. Just go through those. 
both sets. You got both sets. Go through both sets. Write down questions. Write down, you know, what about this? What about that? And, and we can have that discussion we were talking about doing where you guys kind of develop your concept of how salvation works literally through the Word of God. What I don't want you to do is get all tripped out. Don't get all tripped out. Let's just say our purpose in coming together in this class is this. Be consistent with the Word of God. So, I love Calvary Chapel, but I don't see eye to eye with what is considered traditional Calvary Chapel soteriology, which is more moderate than I probably am. But at least I'm telling you out the gate. The, <clears throat> but the I feel a responsibility more to the Word of God than I do to Calvary Chapel. Now maybe your, your background is Baptist or your background is Assembly of God or your background is, could be a hundred other things. And you're thinking, that's, I'm pretty sure that's not what I was taught. All I want to say, our purpose, and I'm open, correct me, fix me, get me back on the, on the right way. But if you're going to do it, you've got to use the Word. Because I want to be consistent with it. It's the only foundation I got. What's the word say? I don't got to be afraid of it. If God says I don't have to be afraid of it, I don't have to freak out about it. I don't have to panic. I don't have to use the tradition of men, right? I just want to be consistent with what the word of God says. So read the rest of these notes and let's discuss it. It's gonna one of the things I want to encourage you, there is sex there's a section on just misconceptions about election. It's on page seven, about halfway down the page. <coughs> misconceptions about election and there's a lot of stuff in there like the comments I'm just a robot then if I, I don't really have choice or um, election is, is not based on God's foreknowledge of faith and, and the biblical response to is it reasonable to assume that when God looks down the corridors of time He sees my choice and that's why I'm elect. And if that was true, then I would think Scripture would speak of our faith as a reason that God chose us. Right? Because that's what we're saying. God saw that I would have faith in Him, and so He chose me. But Scripture's silent on that point. So we have to infer that on our, on our own. Um, or that election is based on something good in us, or that predestination based on foreknowledge does... Uh, the idea is that predestination based on foreknowledge, that God knew I was going to believe in Him, still does not give me free will. So there's a lot of discussion on that. And it should bring up a lot of things. Maybe it'll answer some of the questions that are bouncing around your head right now. Maybe we'll be able to do that here in just a minute. <coughs> but read through that. And allow it to challenge your tradition. And next week come to tell me where I'm wrong. Because I'm way open. Tell me I'm wrong. And, uh, or whatever, whatever concept you have. Just remember, the final arbiter in the discussion is what? Word of God, right? We can all agree on that. Final arbiter in the discussion is the Word of God. So, I'm sure we got lots of questions and we got some time unless you guys are in a hurry to get out. Ready? Go. Who wants to be first? Come on, anybody.
I know you don't all understand it. I see all the looks on your face like I, I'm crazy. It's just, I understand and it, it is to glorify him that we're chosen, but why not other people? That's what that was. That's why me and not somebody else. I know. And the, the only answer that God gives us is to the glory of His grace. But this is what I do, this is why I think it's so vital that we go and we share the gospel. Because everyone, as far as I'm concerned, that calls on the name of the Lord to receive Him is elect. So really we're, we're, in some ways we're arguing over, over how God does what God does. But when you share the gospel with a friend and they, and they say, I want to profess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I want to pray the prayer. I want to bow the knee. I don't care how you view their coming to faith. Whenever they come to faith, what you have just seen is God's election in their life. And the only way for you to see it, the only way for you to see it is to share the gospel. For the reprobate, there are scriptures, and it's in the notes, and we'll talk about it next time and, and try to develop the idea. But there's a term people throw around, I used to use, called double predestination. Still today, I, I reject double predestination. Double predestination would say that God chooses the elect and the reprobate in the same way. I say no. Because... You know, the anthropomorphic language, uh, the language about how God feels about things, <coughs> that it's to the praise of the glory of His grace, that the joy that God has in all heaven erupting when one sinner repents, right? All those things. That's not the same words God uses about when He has to pour out His wrath. He tells us, I have no glory in the destruction of the wicked. There's no joy. There's... It's, it glorifies the justice of God. It glorifies the wrath of God. But the joy is in this, the saved. So, and, and God doesn't tell us upon what He bases that. What He does tell us, and what we have to bring into the equation when we deal with the reprobate, we have to bring into the equation, God doesn't coerce anyone. So no one's forced. Everyone is acting according to his own will and his own desires, whether when they receive Christ and when they reject him. And everyone's responsible for the choice that they make. Somehow God, in his election and in his choosing, he's able to accomplish that. And it's difficult for us to connect the dots. So then, then if God was to call us first, then... Yeah. And we choose to accept I don't think so. I mean, if you if you take the sure, if you take, I mean, ultimately, okay, let's mess with our noodles a little bit. We're let's talk a little bit about foreknowledge of God. Uh, God knows everything. Everybody agree? We talked about that in the attributes of God, right? God knows every choice you're going to make. Right? That's part of everything. So God knows every choice you're going to make. When did God know every choice you're going to make? Before the foundation of the world. Okay, so we're establishing a timeline. God knew every choice you're going to make before you ever made one. And if God knew it, He could never be wrong. 
And you could never have chosen otherwise. So there is no free will. Free will is an illusion. Just chew on it. Unless you're an open theist. Huh? Unless you're an open theist. Unless you, unless you believe in open theism. Which I wasn't going to jump into. <laughs> um, so, to loosely define open theism. There's there's two ways there's two ways that that people deal with the that argument that I just laid out. Um, one is that God is in the eternal now. And in the eternal now, he knows everything. And, and so what they do, it really messes with your brain more because they remove the concept of past and present and make all of God's knowledge in the now, which is mind-boggling. But that, that's, that's, uh, that's one answer. Uh, another is open theism or the idea that God has uh, doesn't really know the future because man has... Uh, that's what you're left with. If you're going toward libertarian free will, which is absolute free will to choose or to not choose, to have both options complete, you could have done either. <clears throat> In order for that to be true, and God to be omniscient, uh, something's got some, got to lose something. And what you lose is God's omniscience. Now God doesn't know the future until you make your choice. It's kind of the concept of open theism. When God, <coughs> when you make your choice, so the problem is we have this thing in the Bible called prophecy. And how would God ever be able to prophesy if he couldn't know what choice is, everything depended on, he had to wait till their choice. <coughs> and when you have prophecy in scripture that is 800 years prior to an event or more that makes those things difficult for me to believe they develop it with an idea called middle knowledge and I'm not real up on middle knowledge and how that works but basically it's a loose knowledge of the future kind of and that is more solidified as it goes on so what you have God doing is not being omniscient, at least in the traditional view of omniscience, and you have God learning. And, and those are difficult areas for me because I don't, I, I just, I can't find that. Again, my point is I want to be consistent with the Word of God. We throw that out, we can do anything we want. But if we're going to use it, then I've got to say, is there really a possibility for there to be libertarian free will? All I mean by that is absolute. Absolute free will. I'm not saying that your choice matters or doesn't matter. But if you receive God, you also could have rejected Him. That's libertarian free will. And I would say you have compatible free will. Which means your choice matters. You really make a choice. You do what you want to do. What is the desire of your heart. And that choice was known and fixed from before you were born. So if God absolutely knows everything and there is nothing that he cannot know, and he gave them, he gave us free choice, free will, then it kind of makes 
Yeah, because there's the concept that God's gift to us was free will is not a biblical concept. It's a it's a human construct. It's something we built to, really for two purposes. Uh, and the primary purpose is to answer the problem of evil. You get what I mean? So if you listen to Rabbi Zacharias or any of the guys from RZIM Ministries, when they deal with the problem of evil, the answer to the problem of evil, I can't remember the guy who did it. I want to say Pascal, but it's not Pascal. Pascal's wager is the one where it says, you know, I I made a bet that Jesus is real, and if you don't accept him, you could lose everything. If you're right, I lose nothing. If I'm right, you lose everything. You guys have heard that before? <coughs> That's called Pascal's wager. Oh, does that matter? It doesn't. Sorry. Unimportant information. Just the things that rattle around in my head. Um, so, I don't even remember what I was talking about now. What was I talking about? You said it's not biblical that God gave us free. Yes. I, I, I can't think of a scripture that says God gave us free will. I'm not saying God didn't give us choice. It's not the same thing. Remember when we talked about free will, I gave you three possibilities for free will. Determinism or fatalism, which is Islamic, which is you don't have any choice. God chose for you and that's how it is. Compatibilism, which says you do have a choice. Your choice does matter. Your choice was fixed from the foundation of the world when God knew it or when God decreed it. And three, libertarian free will, which says you can absolutely do one or the other. Because <coughs> right now, I would say, I, I chose Christ. I choose Jesus. But the point is, God would say, yeah, I chose you before the foundation of the world. And you were always going to choose me because that was going to be your desire. Yes, ma'am. So if we say that I chose God, isn't that putting us in the center? Yeah, yeah. I think it's from, I think sometimes we're speaking from our point of view. You get what I mean? I've heard it explained like uh, <clears throat> when we get to heaven, we're going to walk through this, you know, a sign above the doorway that, that says how to go, uh, um, I, I chose Jesus, and then I walk through, and on the other side it says chosen before the foundation of the world. That they're synonymous terms from the point of view of God. But ultimately, the praise and the glory is all God's. It wasn't my wisdom that led me to Christ. It wasn't anything in me. It was, according to, to John 6, 44, it was the call of the Father. All whom the Father gives me will come to me, and I will raise them up in the last day. There's, it's hard to get away from that. God calls us. We don't call us. Yes. Yeah, God calls us. And we all have common grace, or what was the other one? It's harder to say. I was going to say prenatal. It's not prenatal. Prevenient. 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 Prevenient grace, which is a grace that God bestows upon everyone. But we all know, right, that everyone doesn't come to salvation. 
So to me, the battle, the more consistent view is not free will. The more consistent view is universalism. Everybody say. If I, I think, I think universalism, universalism is more consistent than, our, than a more Armenian view. Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? I think it's more consistent. They look at scriptures the same way, but, but an Armenian doesn't believe everyone's saved, right? We, we all struggle over when we talk about tulip, although we're not talking about tulip, but if we did, of the five parts of tulip, for those of you guys who know it, what's our biggest struggle with? Which one? Well, you might have struggles with all of them. I know I have. But limited atonement is really rough for me. Limited atonement, what are you talking about? The blood of Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost, period. There's no limit to the power of God to save. But wait, we all believe that everyone's not saved. We all believe that some people reject, right? So we all believe in some type of limited atonement, we just don't call it. We just don't call it that. We either limit the power or the scope. We limit the power or the scope. I either say the blood of Jesus Christ was not powerful enough to save through man's will. Or I say the blood of Jesus Christ was only given to the elect. But either way, Either argument, you have limited atonement. Oh, look at all those knitted brows. I, this is my favorite part about doing this. Because I don't want to, I don't want to, again, I don't want to mess with your noodle. I just want to challenge you. Take off your tradition glasses, read the word, and next week, fix it. Come and say, Jackie, you were wrong because of this. I'm okay with it. I swear to Pete. Sure, I would absolutely acknowledge there's a mystery to to uh, who, why God chose who, why God chose me and not somebody else. Well, here's what I what I do know for sure. God wants us to know, and He wants us to understand, and He's given us what we need to understand. The question is, we need to ask ourselves: Is what's in the way? Is my tradition in the way, or is my understanding of of what I'm reading in the way? What's in the way? And then deal with what's in the way. If you say, well. I don't know if I really understand this. I need to do some more reading. Do some more reading. Dive in this. Hey, the, life's journey is a journey of growing in knowledge, right? Understanding things. Not allowing knowledge to puff us up and take us to a point where we become arrogant or unloving or we reflect characteristics that are not godly. But rather that we come to know Him more. If you, if you pray, God, I want to know You and Your truth. And then you look, and when you stumble on it, ask yourself, why am I stumbling? 
Is it because I never was taught this? I was taught something different? Or is it something else? I don't know. If I have to stand on free will, because my free choice, that's also self-centered and profitable. So. Yeah, that's a problem, right? Right. That's a problem. So I demand my free will. Yeah. Scary thing to say, yeah. even, huh? <laughs> Scary to say, and so, I, you know, hopefully it challenges us. So, take what we've got and what I gave you guys. And that's not the end, by the way. I'll probably have another 25 pages <laughs> next time. Because we're not, because we're, all we're talked about so far is election and reprobation. There's a lot of other things that we have questions about, right? So I thought, well, let's, I'm going to, I'm going to continue to try and do a comparison. Okay. So keep both sets in whatever way you think will work so you can understand it. And then we'll, we'll figure it out from there. And so next week, fix me, uh, read the rest, write down your questions, and then let's talk about it. We'll just sit down and talk about what, what's going on in our minds and, and see if God's word has answered. Bring your books. Bring your computer. Whatever you need, man. Whatever will help. Whatever will help. Sound like a plan? Any other questions? That man's conditions, that's pretty insidious. Yes. Because you don't even realize. You just accept things and don't even question it. I know. And then all of a sudden, somebody throws something out. It's like, oh. And you go, what? Are you kidding me? Oh, you really want to mess with your noodle? I have preached it from the pulpit, so. And then I go back and I'm challenged by somebody. Well, where's that in the Bible? (laughs) I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you. And so, really, that was the, you know, I, I shared with you guys last time, this whole journey began with a Facebook conversation with a universalist. Who made me mad? But he was being—he was being more consistent than I was. We're both trying to say the same things, but I'm saying no. Everybody's not saved. What says all? Yeah, but it doesn't mean all. Why? Oh, you're kidding me. So then that was the beginning. Better figure this out. Where is it? Where is that all? What's the Bible? What does the Bible say? I mean, really, for crying out loud, why don't we just get back to basics? You can bail, bro. Oh, You're wow. good. Yeah. I love you, man. Love you too. Be good. Be good. Good night. You got an early day. Don't miss work. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, so just check that out. Look through both of them. If, uh, if you got a, another source, feel free. Bring it in. Discuss why. You know, you may have some... I know Geisler has some difference, differences of opinion in Greek with some of the other guys. So, we can talk about all that stuff. I just want to know the truth. Jesus said the truth will do what? Set me free. Set me free. And to be honest, the idea of election... Sets me free. It's like, I, you know, I say all those things. There's nothing good in me. 
Yes, it can. But it's a worthwhile journey, yes? Yes. You think, Daniel? I like it. Come on! You're not just going to buy all this? No, I need to work out. That's why I like it. about you, Bill? Crazy, huh? Um, in a new, unfamiliar territory. The, the, the good news is it doesn't change anything you do on the corner. That's right. So praise God for that, right? Yeah. That's what I keep in mind. You know, I know I'm saved. And, you, and i got to go out. And i got to tell people. That's it. And i got to share Jesus with them. And praise God for guys like so, you that do it. So whether I believe reform, non-reform, it doesn't matter. This, this is what the Word says. They need the gospel. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, you know. I want to quote by David Platt. I like David Platt. You know he's a Calvinist, right? Yeah. But he said to be evangelistically zealous and biblically clear. Yeah. Speaking of salvation and whatnot. And I love that. Yeah, he's a big guy for no prayer. (laughs) Well, yeah, right. Well, one of the articles. He's good. I've read a couple of his books. I'm no older. That's what he's, well, yeah, he's no magic he's, prayer. He doesn't have a problem with the prayer. He has a problem with is the prayer answer. Right. You leave right. out what, you know, it's okay to have a prayer, but. Sure, we all have. Really what does that mean? How do we start our journey with God? How do we receive? How do we, he said, to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God, to as many as believed on his name. So. Uh, there's a, there's something we do. The Bible doesn't define it for us, so prayer works. Prayer, you know, I'll I'll say a hundred things. Uh, Paul, when he was talking to the on the Areopagus at Mars Hill, he said, "Now in times past, God overlooked your." Uh, so I'm going to use paraphrase because I won't be able to quote it right. Your dumb pagan ways. But now, today, he commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. So the idea that, you know, God's given common grace, but then there's also the call where God says, hey, in or out, in or out, and we choose. And God knows it. But he picked us not because of it. Because he picked us. (laughs) Because he picked us. Because he picked us, we choose. Crazy, huh? So anyway, chew on it, and we'll uh, we'll move beyond the election and reprobation and into some of the other. It's just sad because things. we talk so much about there's so much of this that we were never taught, and we grew up in church. Me too. And it's like I didn't know what was there. Well, you know, I'll tell you this. The blessing of Calvary Chapel is it taught me to read the Bible. The whole Bible, all the Bible, every bit of the Bible, not to skip none of it. And, you know, when I, because like sometimes when I'm looking for, I like, there's certain guys I like how they speak or teach. I like Piper because of his passion. I like Tim Keller because of, uh, some of the same the ways he he's able to explain things. 
But if I'm teaching Psalms and I want to go find something from those guys, yeah, you're not going to do it because they ain't taught it. They've taught Romans. They've taught the Gospels. They've taught pieces of all the different books. I don't think all books, but pieces of of many different books. But there's not that commitment to all the way through the Bible. And that's the blessing in Calvary Chapel because it, it is teaching the Word and all the Word, nothing but the Word. What's the Word say that brought me to this journey in the first place? That it's like, what's the Word say? That's what I want to know. Give me the Word. I hold on to the Word. That's Let's move on. Let's know. Let's understand. Let's grow. And let's be faithful to what the Word teaches us. And that's what we need. When I grew up, I don't... I mean, there was whole books... I mean, I don't know. I was a teenager. I was probably crawling under the pews and <clears throat> trying to figure out how not to be in church or how to be in church and not pay attention. Back in those days, we didn't have cell phones. So, I don't know what I was doing, but just about anything else I could... So I may not have heard everything he taught, but, but there are some things I didn't get. And, you know, I believed in free will. Free will was my answer for evil. And I ran into Isaiah 45. So, anyway, we trudge on to know him more. Sound good? Alright, so check it out. Come together, ready to argue with me. Uh, I'll expect Carrie to go first because she went first today. She'll be ready. She'll give me both barrels. Okay. I just confused you.